Our scripture reading this morning is not exactly a tweet. It is uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1 to Jeremiah 8, uh, verse 3. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. 
Yet they did not listen to me or incline thine ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. There, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land will become a ruin. At that time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves. They will spread them out to the sun, the moon, and to all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They will not be gathered or buried. They will be as dung on the face of the ground. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, we uh, were taken back by these words, and yet we understand you are a holy God, and you bring judgment when it's called for. There is a time when a call for repentance ends and the time of judgment comes. Help us to to really grasp this message. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet turned in faith to the living God through the Son, Jesus Christ, they would hear and understand and repent and be saved. Be with Tom as he preaches, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Does God ever judge His own people? I've heard many believers assert that uh, while God disciplines His people and corrects His people, He never judges us. And if we're talking about the judgment that results in eternal condemnation, then of course I would agree. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John 5:24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. There is no eternal condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But God does most assuredly judge his own people. 
In fact, most by far of the judgments of God in the Old Testament were directed against those whom He called His redeemed people, His beloved, His bride, His treasured possession. And most by far of the judgments that are spoken of in the New Testament are directed against those that God calls His beloved, His bride, His redeemed, His treasured possession. And there are times when God determines to judge His people and He leaves no possibility that they can be spared that judgment. In the Old Testament, when God declared that such a time had come as He does in this passage that Bob just read, there is no use praying for God to withhold that judgment. In the previous three chapters leading up to these, chapters 4 through 6 of Jeremiah, God laid out for Judah the disastrous judgment that would soon come from His hand. An invasion out of the north by a fierce and formidable enemy that God Himself would raise up to be His instrument of judgment against His own people. An invasion that would result in devastating destruction not only to, to Judah, but even to the heavily fortified city of Jerusalem and even to the temple, the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. A judgment that would result in a long captivity for any Judahites that remained alive after the invasion was completed. As chapter 7 opens, God instructs His faithful prophet Jeremiah to stand in the gate at the entrance to the temple compound and to proclaim on His behalf all that He gives to Him to say to all the people who enter within those gates. First, Jeremiah was to tell his people how Judah could be spared the coming judgment. There were two things that God said Judah would have to do. First, they would have to amend their ways and their deeds to match God's ways and God's deeds. And then they would have to stop believing that God could never judge His people, His own people harshly. In verse 3, God says, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you live in this place. Now, we tend to think of ways and deeds as kind of the same thing, but God doesn't. Our ways are the paths. I talked about the word derek. The, the way, the path. Our ways are the paths that we follow that produce the deeds that we choose. Our ways become the grid by which we assess everything that happens to us in our lives and upon which we determine what we must do. Judah's ways had become so corrupted that their entire paradigm for decision-making and for action had become corrupted. In order for the Judahites to return to deeds that were pleasing in the sight of God, God's ways would have to become their ways. In verses 5-7, through seven, God gives Judah a critical example of what he's talking about. 
He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Throughout the Bible, God declares that He is a God of mercy and compassion toward the downtrodden, toward the widow, the orphan, the displaced foreigner, the poor, the prisoner, and the sick. When God's own people refuse to show His compassion to the downtrodden, when they fail to be just and gracious to one another, they prove that their ways are not His ways. And that applies in both Testaments of the Bible. Two of the most often repeated themes in the New Testament are the compassion toward the poor and the downcast that God requires of His people and the call to treat one another justly and graciously. And if we want to know how seriously God takes those two commissions to us, this is a good passage for us to pay attention to. Because here we see what God does when His people abandon His ways. The second condition that God required of Judah to be spared the terrible judgment that He had just foretold in the preceding chapters was that they stop believing that He would never judge His own people harshly. Verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What do those words mean? And who was saying those deceptive things? Micah chapter 3 actually gives us a marvelous explanation of what that verse means in Jeremiah. Micah 3, listen to verses 9 through 12. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money, yet they lean on Yahweh saying, is not Yahweh in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. The rulers, the priests, The prophets of Israel and Judah had deceived the people by tickling their ears, by telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. That because God dwelled in their midst in the temple of Jerusalem, they were guaranteed His protection. Is not Yahweh in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's our security. No nation could ever destroy this city or this temple because God will protect His own dwelling place in the midst of His beloved people. 
They were convinced that this was their get-out-of-jail-free card. That they could have all the backup gods that they wanted. They could do all the shameful things that those gods supposedly required of them. And they could treat the poor and the downtrodden with self-serving contempt so they wouldn't have to share their stuff with people who didn't deserve it. And Yahweh would protect them. Oh, he might not like some of the things that they did, but their rulers and their priests and their prophets told them that Yahweh would protect them. He would never judge them harshly because they were his people. Judah had steadfastly violated both of those conditions for remaining in the land with the blessings of God. They had abandoned the ways and the deeds of Yahweh and they had followed after their own way and they had convinced themselves that they would never suffer harsh judgment from the hand of God no matter what they did. That's an exceedingly dangerous conclusion for the people of God to come to. Come to. God knew that they would persist in both of those failures, so even as He was telling them what it would take for them to be spared His judgment, He was telling His faithful prophet Jeremiah that it was too late. He told Jeremiah to stop praying for them. In verse 16, God said to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. That's a lot of do nots. And right after that, God spoke with great passion as He recounted the sins of Judah against Him. He said to Jeremiah, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? And then God described with His own eyes what, they, what, what He had seen. Every household among His people was making a family project out of the preparation to worship false gods. The children were being sent out to gather wood for their sacrificial fires. And the women were kneading dough to make cakes to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite the one true God, except God said, it's not me that they're spiting, it's themselves. To their own shame. In verse 20, God declares the only possible outcome for Judah's long persistence in such high-handed sin. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Even as he was instructing Jeremiah to call his people to return to him, God knew very well that they would not. He knew they would persist in their ways, living on their own terms, and pretending to worship Him on their own terms. See, Judah never stopped believing that they were good Yahweh worshipers. You ever think about that? They had all the backup gods, but their favorite god was Yahweh. They had kept up a rough approximation of certain parts of the worship system that God laid out in the Law of Moses. And apparently they were pretty precise about doing some of it right. 
But in verse 21, God speaks to them with seething sarcasm. He says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. What does that mean? The burnt offering, the olah, the whole burnt offering, was the only category of sacrifice in the law of Moses from which no Israelite was allowed to eat any portion. The priests received back a portion of the sin and guilt offerings, and both the priests and the offerer received back portions of the peace offerings. The peace offering was a sit-down dinner with God, a celebration of well-being and of peace with God. But there was one offering that no offerer and no priest got to consume any of, and that was the whole burnt offering. Because that signified the dedication of the entire offerer on the altar to God. And God got all of it. But because of all their other violations of the sacrificial law and because of the hardness of their hearts against God, God said to Judah, in effect, you might as well eat the whole burnt offering too. Because your offerings, your sacrifices mean nothing to me. In Hosea 6, verse 6, God said to Israel, For I desire chesed, steadfast covenant love, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Steadfast covenant love and the knowledge of God. That's what God requires. Without a response of love for God that proceeds from personal knowledge of the covenant-keeping God, Judah's sacrifices were just symbols robbed of all substance. They were meaningless. They were an insult to God. So their efforts to comply with specific instructions concerning a particular sacrifice were a joke. But the sins of Judah had gone far beyond meaningless ritual. Listen again to verses 30 and 31. For the sons of Judah have done what is evil in my sight, declares Yahweh. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Now up to that point, they had done nothing that that the northern tribes hadn't done. Israel had done the same things. They built places of worship and they put the idols right alongside the, the objects of worship of Yahweh. There weren't even supposed to be any high places, any other places than the temple. But here's what Judah added to the mix. Verse 31, they had built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command and it did not come into my mind. Treacherous Judah had exceeded even the apostasies of faithless Israel. In the days of Manasseh, Judah had even embraced the horrible pagan practice of child sacrifice, a practice that God says never entered his mind. Listen to what Derek Kidner says in his commentary about verses 30 and 31. With these verses, the indictment reaches a new intensity. With the crowning horror of child sacrifice. What is most revealing, however, about the pagan outlook of Judah is the fact that this was thought to be a crowning piety. Child sacrifice was thought to be a crowning 
piety. What he's saying, and I very much agree with him, is that the Judahites actually convinced themselves that their, their child sacrifices were pleasing to Yahweh. It was as if they thought they could present an offering to Yahweh that was even more valuable to him than the ones he actually required. They would do for their favorite God the things that their other gods required of them. And then they'd be really assured of his blessing. They would offer their own children to him as sacrifices on their convenient, close-to-home altars that didn't require them to travel such ridiculous distances to get to where Yahweh was. More and better sacrifices than God had ever asked for. Wouldn't he love that? Now God told Jeremiah that their ways would instead ensure that the places upon which they offered those repugnant sacrifices would become, as Kidner says, an open grave for their own remains. Jeremiah 7, verse 33, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth and no one will frighten them away. Now in case you think that that is new as a warning, go back and read Deuteronomy 28. In fact, I highly encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 because it sets everything that we're seeing here in perspective. This is not a new warning. That was a thousand years earlier. And he talks about the bodies in the fields for the birds to eat. Chapter 8, verse 1, At that time, declares Yahweh, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves and they will spread them out to the sun and the moon and to all the hosts of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They will not be gathered or buried. They will be as dung on the face of the ground. Does it sound like God is angry? The high-handed rebellion of Judah had reached the point of no return. No solution that could avoid the severe judgment of God. In the last verse of this message at the temple gate, chapter 8, verse 3, God says, And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares Yahweh of armies. He's saying that his people would persist in their rebellion even after the army of invaders that God was about to send had done their worst. Even after they had decimated the city and destroyed the temple. Even after they had taken those who remained alive into exile, into slavery, in godless lands. They would still persist in choosing death rather than life. And if you think that's a new proposition, go back and read Deuteronomy 10. Only a miraculous transformation of their hearts would bring them to the ways and deeds that God required of them and to the blessedness that God had promised to their forefathers. God himself would bring about that transformation, but only after he had chastised them severely and humbled them greatly. Because without humility, there is no such thing as righteousness.
There was no other way. For now, God told Jeremiah to stop praying for them. He commanded Jeremiah to continue speaking to them as his mouthpiece, but he knew and he declared that they would not listen, just like he had said to Isaiah. They would happily hear and embrace the deceptive words of their leaders who told them all would be well and they could go on doing what they'd been doing, but they would not listen to the Word of God. And that had been their pattern for a very long time. Judah had already seen what God had done to Shiloh, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. He told Jeremiah to remind them of that in chapter, here in chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. They had God's works as a compelling reference point, but what should have given Judah the greatest cause to tremble before Yahweh because of their ways and their deeds was His Word. His Word. He had been warning them for generations. Again, Deuteronomy was the warnings in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 were written a thousand years before this. And by the way, when you get to the siege of Jerusalem, Deuteronomy 28 describes it in fine detail before Jerusalem was ever the capital of anything related to God's people. In Jeremiah 7, verses 23 to 28, listen. And as, as I speak, please listen for what God says about His Word. This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil heart. They went backward and not forward. And then listen, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising early and sending them. God is saying, I never stopped being diligent to proclaim the truth to you and even to warn you. Verse 26, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. And then he says to Jeremiah, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Beloved, the time when prayer for God's people is not heard by God is when God's people do not hear God's Word. When they refuse to hear the Word of God. When they replace His Word with their own Word, their own evil counsels. And when God's people do that, they are choosing death rather than life. And if they persist long enough on that way, on that path, the time for judgment is inescapable. And in this case, it involved death on a massive scale. I'm going to jump ahead a few chapters to chapter 11 where God restates the same accusation regarding His people's unwillingness to hear His Word and restates the same command to Jeremiah to stop praying for them. And again, I'm going to ask you to listen for what God says about His Word. 
The Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his own evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. He did all the things that he had been warning them about for a thousand years. Then the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words. And they have gone after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And they have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am bringing disaster on them which they will not be able to escape. Though they cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and they will cry to the gods to whom they burn incense but they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. And then he says to Jeremiah again, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. And then listen to the last verse of that passage. What right has my beloved? What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can the sacrificial flesh take away from your disaster so that you can rejoice? Chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, he tells Jeremiah again, don't pray for the well-being of his people. The time when prayer for God's people is pointless is when His people refuse to hear His Word. When they replace His Word with their Word. So what does that have to do with us? Is there any modern counterpart in the church today to these terrible sins that Judah committed 2,500 years ago? As some would say, not in the real church. No true Christian would worship false gods. No true Christian would do the things that God listed even in Jeremiah 7 verse 9. Steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely. And I'm happy to say I've never been to a church that practiced child sacrifice. Surely no actual child of God would ever be guilty of sins of that magnitude, right? Well, that would depend on whose standard you're using to answer the question. If you're using God's standard, the only one that matters, the answer is yes. We who are the redeemed children of God under the new covenant are guilty of sins every bit as vile as those that were practiced in Judah. They may not look the same on the outside, but the God who sees our hearts declares them to be the same abominable violations against his character. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the highest court. That means godless. And whoever shall say, you fools, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. I've been angry with my brothers in Christ at times with an anger that had no resemblance to the righteousness of God, the righteous indignation of God. So Christ's standard, his measure of righteousness, which is the only one that matters, makes me a murderer. Jesus went on in that same well-known sermon to say, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. That standard, that measure of righteousness, The only one that matters makes me an adulterer who deserves to spend eternity in hell. Apparently, I'm not the only one who doesn't hate the sin of sexual lust quite as much as God does yet because so far I haven't met any one-eyed, one-armed Christians. But I know a whole bunch of Christians who are still doing battle every day against the sin of lust and who don't always come out victorious. But at least we're good on the idolatry thing, right? Let's see. In Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed equals idolatry? I'm toast. Beloved, in order for us to assert that we are not sinners like the Judahites deserving the same judgments that God poured out on them, we have to redefine sin and righteousness and judgment using a compromised standard that denies the holiness of God. In other words, we have to stop hearing God's word and we have to replace it with ours. The only reason that we manage to convince ourselves that we aren't still guilty of sins deserving God's severest punishment is because we don't have a high enough view of the holiness of God or of the wretchedness of our sin. And the reason that happens is the same reason it happened in Judah. We're not listening to what God clearly says in His Word. If we can say that the Judahites in Jeremiah's day deserved what they got and at the same time say that we don't deserve what they got, we're ignoring God's clear declarations about our sin because we deserve a whole lot worse. We deserve hell. When that happens, we have thrown out godly humility. We have become Pharisees just like the ones in Jesus' day thinking that somehow... We have a greater claim on the favor of God than certain other people do. That assumption is always wrong. doesn't mean that we don't receive the favor of God. It doesn't mean that the favor of God is not promised to us as His children. It means we have no claim on it that comes from us. How does the modern church measure up to God's ways and to God's deeds when it comes to treatment of the poor and the downtrodden? 
Do we hold loosely to the things of this world that God puts in our hands, seeing them all as opportunities to live out the ways and the works of God toward one another and toward those who don't know Him yet? Or do we say, hmm, I gave on tax day and that was painful enough? Which do we actually think matters more to Christ when we encounter a neighbor who's struggling to get by? Smoking out his immigration status? Or opening our home and our schedule and our wallet to show him the compassion and the mercy and the lavish grace of God and to introduce him to the Son of God? Debbie and I have been in that exact situation. What is our modern counterpart to Judah's mantra, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? How about the deep-seated belief that belonging to Christ is supposed to guarantee us cultural acceptability? That our relationship with Him is supposed to protect us from any serious harm from this godless world in which we live, even though Jesus and His disciples told us it would guarantee just the opposite. More to the point, how do we expect God to deal with the many things in our hearts and in our lives that don't match up with our calling and our identity in Jesus Christ, both as individuals and as the household of God? Do we believe that God is supposed to keep the lessons that will conform us to Christ painless? Or do we believe what He actually says? In 1 Corinthians 11, when some in God's spiritual household were treating the sacred sacred remembrance of the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to indulge in a me-first feast of gluttony and drunkenness, Paul said, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, some of you Corinthian saints have been judged by God to the point of physical death. And he says, but if we judged, listen to this, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you know why God stops some Christians in their tracks and takes their lives? It is so that they will not be condemned along with the world. See, there's not a chance that a Christian will be condemned along with the world. But what it takes for God to stop us when we're on the path of death from reaching the end of it, sometimes is physical death. The fact that even such a severe judgment from the hand of God won't result in our eternal condemnation doesn't seem to make Paul think that the warning is toothless. Because the judgment he's talking about is a life-disrupting and potentially life-ending judgment. As the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness of truth. That's what he said about himself in Exodus 34. But, beloved, slow to anger doesn't mean that God never gets seriously angry with his children. We need to be listening to his assessment of our sin instead of deciding that somehow it's passable. It's not that bad. God's love is miraculous and it's marvelous and it's perfect. But beloved, God's love is never benign. It is never harmless. 
The way God loved Judah is the way God loves us. It is a relentless love. It is a tough love. For every single child of God, there are times when that love brings a scourging. That's exactly what God says in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Go Google the word Roman scourging and see what you come up with. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all, all true children have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you want that? Do you want to share in the holiness of God? Do you want the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Then guys, it means a refiner's furnace. For us who belong to Christ, God's judgment is not the opposite of His steadfast covenant love. For God's people, God's judgment, even to the point of death, is the outworking of His steadfast covenant love. But if we have no fear of that love-driven judgment, we do not understand who it is with whom we have to do. I know without a doubt that nobody will ever separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nobody and nothing. I know that my destiny is to dwell with God forever in His glorious kingdom together with all of His redeemed. But I also know that God is not a God to be trifled with. I know that it is a fearsome fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God and I don't want to go there. His judgment against His children is gracious, but it is also fearsome. But it's always gracious. Loving Father, forgive us when we foolishly see you as harmless. <laughs> what an absurd notion. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to behold you rightly, to hear your word to us, and to respond with humble, joyful submission to the sovereign God who controls all the armies of heaven and earth. Father, we confess that your judgment toward us is not to destroy but to sanctify That refiner's furnace of affliction is our birthright only by your grace. Yours is a fearsome grace that is ever gracious to those whom you've redeemed at the cost of your son's priceless blood. Father, make us holy. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.